We have a couple of pre-test questions here. The first one is, in a patient with carotid stenosis being evaluated for revascularization, which of the following is considered to be symptomatic? Vertigo last week with a 90% right carotid stenosis. Two, ipsilateral transient monocular blindness one month ago. Three, hemisensory loss one year ago or four, expressive dysphagia seven months ago. Which of those is a, a symptomatic carotid stenosis? Okay. Question number two. A 77-year-old man referred two months after an ischemic stroke affecting his left arm and leg with good recovery. His CTA indicates an occluded right internal carotid artery and a 50% stenosis of the left internal carotid artery. Which of the following is correct? Right carotid endarterectomy is indicated to reduce recurrent stroke risk. Left carotid stenting is indicated to reduce recurrent stroke risk. Carotid angiography should be performed prior to making a decision or revascularization is not indicated. Okay. And question number three, which of the following is true? Renal denervation has proven long-term benefit. Or an 80-year-old female with stable, controlled hypertension and unilateral FMD is a good candidate for renal angioplasty. C, clinical benefit of renal artery stenting is supported by level one evidence. D, a 66-year-old male ex-smoker with PSV 400 centimeters per second at ostium of a solitary kidney, blood pressure of 150 on three drugs, a creatinine increasing from 1.5 to 2.1 over the last year is a suitable candidate for stenting. Or E, stenting has not been shown to reduce restenosis for atheromatous renal artery stenosis. Okay. I think we have about 30% or so improvement we can make on each of those questions. So, Dr. Ian McPhail is gonna to talk to us about the carotid and renal beds and our approaches to those, uh, those diseases in those areas. Uh, Ian uh, is trained in cardiovascular medicine but is also one of the first people at our institution to cross over and work in the interventional radiology lab. So he has uh, a well-rounded viewpoint of these disease beds. So Ian, thank you so much for joining us this year and tell us what we need to know. Okay, thanks Steve. So, um, I'm a plumber. Um, I once gave a patient uh, Silostazole many years ago and he, he came back a few months later and he said, uh, I said, well, how's it going? He said, it's good. My walking's better. My chronic constipation has resolved and my erections have come back. I thought that was pretty good for one drug. <laughs> okay, when I, when I think about uh, carotid and, and renal beds, I think about two arteries or territories that have a lot in common. These, these arteries are about the same size. 
they supply organs that have similarly high and constant blood flow needs with low resistance and a lot of diastolic flow. They are plagued by the same disease processes, atheromatous disease, but they also get FMD, they can dissect. No disclosures, a few abbreviations here, CAS, carotid artery stent, CCA, common carotid artery, CEA, carotid endarterectomy, ICA, internal carotid artery, RAS, renal artery stenosis, and RVH, not right ventricular hypertrophy, but renovascular hypertension. I've tried to highlight uh, key points in red and underline them. So learning objectives are quite broad. Uh, diagnosis and management of asymptomatic carotid disease, and the same for symptomatic carotid disease, acute stroke, and renal vascular disease. Uh, any of these could be a talk unto itself. We'll try and uh, We'll try and get through it in reasonable time. We'll start with objectives one and two, carotid disease. And here, we should say that we're focusing on atheromatous disease of the internal carotid artery, not the common carotid artery, not the external carotid artery that supplies the side of the, of the head, of the face rather, but uh, the internal carotid artery. First question that comes up is, do we go looking for it to diagnose it? Do we, do we screen? asymptomatic patients? And the answer is clearly no. But those who have a brewery, those who've had symptoms, then we have to image them. Ultrasound, of course, is widely available. It's cheap, it's effective. A few numbers to have in your head for significant stenoses. Greater than 50% would be a peak systolic velocity greater than or equal to 125 centimeters per second. And a peak systolic velocity ratio in the internal carotid to the common carotid between two and four. And for a truly high grade stenosis of greater than 70%, that's peak systolic velocity above 230 and a ratio of at least four. Of course, you can image with other modalities, CTA and MR. Um, have, you're well familiar with those imaging techniques. They're more, uh, uh, provide more information about the arch and great vessels that may be particularly relevant uh, if you're stenting. Angiography has fallen by the wayside as a diagnostic modality for the most part just because of the strokes that are associated with performing the procedure. So two questions then when you're approaching the patient with carotid disease. The first is, are they symptomatic? Binary decision, yes or no. And the second is severity, and I don't mean severity of symptoms, I mean severity of the stenosis. So what is symptomatic carotid disease? It's ipsilateral, amaurosis fugax, transient visual loss, or contralateral, motor and sensory symptoms, or dysphagia, within six months. If it's more than six months, it's old news. They've passed through their high-risk period, they're considered asymptomatic. Another important point, is that the symptoms of dizziness, syncope, presyncope are not considered symptoms for purposes of carotid disease. Measuring severity uh, using angiographic techniques, the gold standard is the NASA trial where they're looking at the tightest area of stenosis and the reference diameter is the normal internal carotid artery above versus the European carotid surgery study uh, which used the, the widest diameter at the carotid bulb, but NACID is the gold standard. So 
we sort out whether they're symptomatic or asymptomatic and the severity of the stenosis. And it's the intersection of these parameters that determines what we do. Now, for the next five slides, we're going to be talking about patients with symptoms, symptomatic carotid disease. And it's written on every slide, but I just wanted to highlight we're talking now about symptomatic disease. And for patients with symptomatic carotid disease, their stroke risk increases quite substantially with the severity of stenosis. Two-year stroke risks shown here without intervention. So for a modest stenosis of 50 to 69%, that might be 10%. But if they have a truly high-grade stenosis up in the 90% range, they're up over 30% to your stroke risk. So stroke risk increases with stenosis severity for the symptomatic patient. What if we operate on them or revascularize them? The early trials, NASA and ECST, were trials of symptomatic patients. And shown here graph, or, uh, in, this, uh, in this graph are, um, refers to uh, ipsilateral stroke in patients with greater than 50% carotid stenosis. And all I hope to illustrate here is that these two lines have a significant distance between them so that carotid endarterectomy is superior to medical treatment for the symptomatic patient with greater than 50% stenosis. Just like we said that stroke risk increased with stenosis severity, similarly, the benefit to revascularizing increases with stenosis severity. So shown here are numbers needed to treat to prevent one stroke in a symptomatic patient. And if it's a modest, moderate stenosis in the 50 to 69% range, that's 13, but that drops to six once the stenosis is greater than 70%. In addition, there are some high-risk clinical features in the symptomatic patients. The slide is a bit busy. The numbers in parentheses after the clinical parameters refer to the five-year absolute risk reduction in ipsilateral stroke. In elderly patients, for example, if you're less than 65, that absolute risk reduction is 5.6%. But if you're over 75, it goes up to almost 20%. Similarly, if you have had recent symptoms, particularly within the last couple of weeks, there's substantial benefit to revascularizing. If your symptoms were a few months ago, greater than 12 weeks, there's much less benefit. And this has been a major paradigm shift in how symptomatic carotid disease has been approached in the last five or 10 years. There's been a move towards revascularizing symptomatic patients on a sort of a semi-urgent basis. Males have substantially greater benefit than females. And if they have hemispheric symptoms, so contralateral motor or sensory symptoms, compared to amaurosis, then revascularization will also confer greater benefit. A few pearls then with symptomatic carotid disease. Again, there's a high risk of stroke in the early period after TIA. That, high, that risk is highest in the first couple of weeks, so operate early for TIA or non-disabling stroke. If they've had a major disabling stroke, then you have to wait for the brain to settle down and, and uh, solidify or, or the bleeding risk is high. The risk increases with the severity of the stenosis, greater than 50%. Revascularization is effective. 
particularly in, in older males with recent hemispheric symptoms. Mild stenoses, even if they're symptomatic, do not benefit from revascularization. So that was symptomatic carotid disease. We changed gears now to asymptomatic disease. A couple of large trials, uh, ACAS and ACST, these were trials that were conceived in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and, it's in, and although they were very large trials and powerful in their own way, they were from the pre-statin era. And as opposed to the two lines shown several slides back for symptomatic carotid disease, these are two lines that are quite close together over time. Best you can make it look would be five-year risk of stroke and perioperative stroke or death, about 11% for medical therapy versus 5 to 7% for carotid endarterectomy. There are a few buts, uh, and the buts are that the benefit was seen for younger patients, at least in the ACAS trial, less than 75. And again, in ACAS, the benefit was seen in males, not females, although females did have benefit in ACST. Um, it's contingent upon your, you having a uh, perioperative stroke and death rate of 3% or less, so having a, a skilled operator, skilled surgeons in this case, and having a life expectancy of greater than five years. But again, to circle back to the point that these are old trials, and this data is really obsolete. This was pre-statin era, and more, more recent data would suggest that the current stroke rate um, is around 0.5 to 1% a year, as opposed to looking back at that first bullet point there, they've got a five-year stroke death, about 11%, so we're looking at about 2% a year in the pre-statin era. So asymptomatic carotid pearls, asymptomatic carotid disease is low risk. Screening is not cost-effective. Of course, it should prompt optimal medical therapy, but we don't really know the efficacy of optimal, optimal medical therapy versus endarterectomy versus carotid artery stent. But we will, and that's the CREST-2 trial, which is ongoing. Um, there's also a French trial in the works uh, by the acronym of uh, ACTRIS. Guidelines suggest that you can consider revascularization in selected patients, although that patient population is not well-defined. Word about optim optimal uh, medical therapy, particularly antithrombotic therapy. Although we give all these patients aspirin, and it's a class one uh, indication, it probably doesn't do all that much to prevent stroke, although we would like to think it did. Um, in uh, the, the issue of dual antiplatelet therapy with aspirin and clopidogrel, don't get sucked into that on a board's question. Uh, there is no benefit. That's the charisma trial. And if they're, if they're symptomatic and antiplatelet therapy naive, fine, aspirin. If they were on aspirin, you can change that to clopidogrel or the combination of, of uh, aspirin and dipyridamol. In the acute setting, heparin is not of benefit and is contraindicated. Again, I won't, I won't dwell on this, particularly the, to this audience. It's like bringing coal to Newcastle, but just to highlight the role of the statins um, in prevention. Here it is in a very crude sort of graphic way with the line across the top showing carotid stenosis severity from 1% 
up through 50, 70 to 99%. Not 100%, but to 99%. And in that 1 to 50% range, nobody gets revascularized. In that 50 to 99% symptom, uh, range, the symptomatic patients will benefit from revascularization. The more severe the stenosis, the greater their benefit. In that 70 to 99% range, if the patients are asymptomatic and of low interventional risk, then it is reasonable to consider revascularization, recognizing that we still don't know how good optimal medical therapy is in the current era, uh, and this remains a very, very, very vexing question. And of course, everyone gets optimal medical therapy. So that last graphic went up to 99%. It did not include 100% or chronic total occlusion. CTO, just say no. Don't revascularize. There's no benefit. Principles of revascularization for carotid disease in general. I grew up with this atherothrombotic paradigm of coronary disease. Um, if you have a fixed stenosis, you run up the stairs, you get angina. Carotid disease is a little different. If I've got a carotid stenosis and I've been sitting in board review class and it's the last talk of the afternoon and I'm thinking really hard, I might get a headache, I might get a little dizzy, but I won't have a TIA. So it's, it's more of an atheroembolic model and revascularization is to reduce embolic risk. Whether that revascularization is endarterectomy, uh, where the plaque is shelled out and a patch is typically sewn in the artery, or whether the plaque is trapped down with a stent. Now, there have been a lot of trials concerning uh, stenting of the carotid um, and a tremendous amount of controversy. And without getting into the weeds of, of each of these trials and its inclusion and exclusion criteria and subgroup analysis and composite endpoints, you just go crazy doing that. What are the lessons learned in general? One is that carotid endarterectomy is associated with more heart attacks and more cranial nerve palsy. Cranial nerve palsy is sort of the dirty little secret of vascular surgery for carotid disease. That instance can be as high as, 10, as uh, 5%. There are a lot of cranial nerves that, that run in proximity to the carotid, uh, include branches of the um, uh, facial nerve, uh, cranial nerve 9, 10, 11, 12, uh, sympathetic chain, and uh, fortunately, they, they tend to resolve. Carotid artery stenting has more perioperative stroke. Well, that's not surprising. It's not quite as controlled. There aren't, isn't a distal clamp on the artery. You're monkeying around with catheters in the aortic arch, which may or may not be a friendly aortic arch. So there's, there's consistently more perioperative stroke. But interestingly, in recent years, as late results are reported, the late results for ipsilateral stroke from the two techniques are fairly similar. Uh, in the guidelines, carotid endarterectomy still has the overall edge, uh, particularly in older patients, something about older arteries that may not respond as well to, to uh, catheter-based techniques. So if they're symptomatic, endarterectomy gets a class 1A and stenting a 1B. If they're asymptomatic, endarterectomy gets a 2A and stenting gets a 2B. But once again, we don't know the efficacy of current uh, medical therapy for asymptomatic patients, and the CREST-2 trial should tell us that.
referenced this just a moment ago, but the idea of the configuration and atheromatous burden of the aortic arch. Is it going to be friendly to catheter manipulations? Is the brachiocephalic artery, for example, the first branch of the, uh, of the arch, going to be easy to engage or is it going to be difficult? Um, and is that going to increase or decrease the risk of a catheter-based technique? There are some features of, uh, that are considered high risk for surgery uh, as well. There's some anatomic criteria. This is a bit of a laundry list. Uh, I think maybe the most, some of the more, more concrete um, anatomic issues would be prior radiation therapy, a lesion that's too high or too low, contralateral occlusion, uh, and in particular, a contralateral laryngeal nerve palsy that might steer you towards stenting. A few other issues with carotid disease before we leave the topic. And one is the issue of concomitant carotid and coronary disease and how that's approached around uh, uh, bypass grafting. Uh, most cabbage strokes are not due to carotid disease. It seems that, that the carotid disease is more of a marker for disease of the arch, which is probably responsible uh, for most of those strokes. So what if the patient is, for example, asymptomatic but has a high-grade stenosis. You probably should just go ahead with the cabbage. But if they're asymptomatic and they have severe bilateral disease, then it's reasonable to do a staged or synchronous revascularization of both. Um, and again, if, they're, if they are uh, symptomatic and have a high-grade stenosis, and then again, uh, you, can, you can do a staged or synchronous approach. What about carotid disease and major non-cardiac surgery? In summary, it's the usual criteria for carotid revascularization. With one important point being that if the patient has had a stroke recently, you should delay that major non-cardiac surgery. There's a Danish uh, study of over 7,000 patients, and there was a dramatically increased risk of perioperative stroke if you, if you did the, the, the non-cardiac surgery early after the stroke, so you need to wait for that to settle down. One slide on carotid dissection. Uh, this is something that could well appear on boards, so I'd be surprised if it didn't. Typically a middle-aged patient, they may be spontaneous, they may be traumatic. They will often present with pain, either pain in the side of the neck or it can trigger headache, and a Horner syndrome with ptosis and meiosis, and they may or may not have ischemic symptoms. There are no randomized control, uh, controlled trials of medical versus interventional therapy, but they are treated medically. And you can treat them either with anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy uh, with, a, with a recent uh, prospective study, um, CATA study, showing non-inferiority with antiplatelet therapy. And the risk of newer recurrent uh, ischemic or hemorrhagic symptoms may be as high as 10 to 20% um, in the highest reported series, but by and large, they tend to do well. What about carotid FMD? Second most common territory for fibromuscular dysplasia after the renal arteries. And it's, uh, of course, associated with uh, spontaneous coronary dissection, which has received so much attention in recent years. These patients may have pulsatile tinnitus, headache, or they may present with ischemic symptoms. They may dissect, and they're treated with antiplatelet therapy and blood pressure control, and rarely intervened upon. So for boards 2018, symptomatic carotid stenosis, revascularize uh, for greater than 50% stenosis as a class one recommendation. 
you intervene early when they're in the high-risk period. And al although there is, uh, there is more and more evidence for non-inferiority of stenting as long-term results are reported, um, unless they clearly have some high surgical risk feature for boards, they probably want you to be more conservative and, uh, and answer with endarterectomy. Um, as one of my colleagues says, do what you're good at. For asymptomatic carotid stenosis, it is, quote, reasonable to consider revascularization uh, for severe stenosis in younger patients if they don't have uh, major comorbidities and if your perioperative stroke rate is low. If it's not low, there won't be benefit. You'll be harming these patients. Surgery gets a 2A and stenting a 2B. Uh, and once again, there's this lack of contemporary data versus modern medical therapy. And the benefit of revascularization in the current era is likely to be diminished. Uh, the higher risk patients, not defined. What constitutes a high-risk asymptomatic patient? It may be a silent infarction on CT. It may be progression of the plaque in spite of optimal medical therapy. It may be plaque characteristics is variously defined, uh, but that remains an evolving area of knowledge. We'll move on now from carotid disease to acute stroke. This is certainly something that's changed since I've been in training. Now, first of all, the issue of diagnosis. Well, of course, the physical exam and Stroke scales, the, NIA, the National Institute of Health Stroke Scale is, is one that's recommended in the recent guidelines. I would definitely need the app. It's got about a dozen parameters with multiple scoring. I could never remember that. I like that Cincinnati pre-hospital one that they teach in, uh, in uh, ACLS these days where you, you kind of have them smile, you have them close their eyes and hold their palms out and ask them, if, ask them to see. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. That I can remember. So uh, of those three uh, points, if all three are abnormal, then that's about an 85% sensitivity for an acute stroke. In terms of brain imaging, which has to be performed, uh, non-contrast CT is widely available. It's cheap, cost-effective, and it will detect bleeds. More sophisticated imaging, CT with contrast diffusion-weighted MRI, fine, but non-contrast CT is, is what's going to be most widely available. In particular, the, uh, the CT angiogram, the head and neck, is of relevance uh, for mechanical thrombectomy, and we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in a couple slides here. Other acute parameters that it's important to assess, aside from a, a physical exam, stroke scale, and non-contrast CT of the head, is glucose. If they're low, you don't want to mistake that for the stroke. Get that treated, goal 60 to 180. ECG and troponins can be after uh, thrombolysis is given. Keep their saturation over 94. And as Dr. Pollack mentioned in her hypertension talk earlier today, blood pressure goal for considering for, for thrombolysis is less than 185 over 110. Uh, there are trials ongoing regarding uh, uh, hypothermia, but, for, but at present, uh, the guidelines are to, uh, to maintain normal thermia. So IV thrombolytics, and that's, that's sort of the big change in the last 10 years. Just like we learned that time was myocardium, time is brain, TPA to be given within three hours of onset of symptoms, there's been some creep with that. There's been benefit shown out to four and a half hours. Uh, it's, it's a stiff dose of alteplase, 0.9 milligrams per kilogram, maximum 90 milligrams over 60 minutes, with the additional 10% over one minute, if you can remember that. Interestingly, there is no restriction for the, the, uh, for the elderly. Stroke severity, antiplatelet therapy, or end-stage renal disease. And this increases the chances of recovery of, of uh, functional independence substantially by about a third.
with the number needed to treat of 14. I've highlighted this whole slide in red, basically, and these are the contraindications to TPA, very fertile ground for board questions. Any intracranial hemorrhage ever. If within the last three months they've had a stroke, head trauma, brain or spine surgery. If they have a brain or spine tumor, if they're coagulopathic, and that includes platelet count less than 100 or an INR greater than 1.7. Are they anticoagulated? That includes a shot of, of low molecular weight heparin or direct oral anticoagulant. Do they have endocarditis, where lysis would, would put them at risk of intracranial hemorrhage? Or have they had an aortic dissection, which would be exacerbated by lytic therapy? A word on antithrombotic anti therapy in this setting. Uh, there is no benefit to urgent anticoagulation with heparin for acute ischemic stroke. And aspirin is usually started within the, the first 24 to 48 hours, optimal timing unknown, uh, but um, not of, uh, seemingly not of major importance. What about gizmotherapy, getting up there with a catheter and extracting the thrombus, interventional stroke teams? Important point here is that those patients who might go on to have an interventional approach still get the TPA. You don't give the TPA and wait around for a response. Give the TPA if they might have appropriate anatomy on CTA, for example, and you have access to an interventional stroke team, they go. And there's benefit to that intervention out to six hours. And this is, again, for, for large artery occlusions uh, in the anterior circulation, M1 segment of the, uh, of the middle cerebral artery. Move on now to, uh, to renal vascular disease to wrap it up. Um, atherosclerotic renal artery stenosis is common. FMD is fairly common, particularly in young women. And hypertension and chronic kidney disease are common. But how do you sort them out? That's the hard part. So diagnosing renal artery stenosis, that's easy. Um, do we, much like uh, asymptomatic carotid disease, we don't go screening for it. There's no benefit to that. Ultrasound uh, should be your first modality. The studies are somewhat long and operator dependent, and you're looking for a peak systolic velocity uh, of at least 300 centimeters per second for a meaningful stenosis. You can use cross-sectional imaging techniques or angio. You're looking for a tight stenosis. You're not looking for a 60% stenosis as was used in many of the trials. Uh, if you have a, a cross-sectional image in front of you, you're looking, um, one important clue is post-stenotic dilatation uh, in those with atheromatous disease. Here are a couple of sample CT and MR uh, images. In the, uh, in the image on the left side of the screen, the arrow shows an atheromatous stenosis at the origin of the right renal artery. The distortion of the left was due to a huge tumor uh, in, the, in the left renal pelvis, and that patient went on to left nephrectomy. And an MR image uh, also shown. What about catheter-based angiography? That remains the gold standard for fibromuscular dysplasia. On the left side of the screen, you see a typical atheromatous osteolesion. And on the right side of the screen, you see that fibromuscular dysplasia, the, str the, the string of pearls, beads on a string in the mid-distal renal artery. So if diagnosis of renal artery stenosis is easy, diagnosis of renovascular hypertension is hard. And it's interesting that the, the most uh, helpful parameters tend to be clinical parameters. As Dr. Pollock mentioned earlier, if the patient has new hypertension or if their hypertension is, is slipping out of control, 
it's that change or that delta in their blood pressure. It's actually the most powerful picture or a predictor of success in revascularizing a tight stenosis. Um, have they completely failed medical therapy? You can't control them at all. Does their creatinine go up after an ACE inhibitor? Do they have progressive increase in creatinine with a shrinking kidney? Are they, are they have a, do they have an ischemic nephropathy? Is it a young woman who you might expect, uh, or who you wouldn't expect to be hypertensive, but who might have FMD? Are they having recurrent heart failure, flash pulmonary edema? These are the sicker patients. These are the ones that you revascularize. Whereas if those clinical parameters are helpful, the testing parameters are less helpful. I do mention the concept of resistance, uh, resistive index that pops up every once in a while. That's a ratio of the, uh, the renal artery peak systolic velocity minus the end diastolic velocity over the peak systolic velocity. If, those, um, uh, if that ratio is creeping up, particularly greater than eight, the, the, that kidney's getting, the small vessels are getting stiff, and there's less likely to be benefit from revascularization. Other his, uh, historical tests, capital enhanced renin activity, radionuclide studies looking at perfusion and, and function of a kidney, even invasive renal vein uh, renin sampling are, are just unfortunately not that helpful. There have been some randomized controlled trials looking at this question, Coral, Star, and Astral, and some very colorful editorials written about them. Um, what did we learn? Well, we learned that there's really no benefit to revascularization if the blood pressure is controlled and the renal function is stable. But these trials included a lot of patients who just had very mild disease, and it left out all the sick ones that you might actually be able to help with a, with a renal revascularization procedure. So they didn't study the ones most likely to benefit. Just a case example here, young woman with hypertension, she's 155 over 95 on lisinopril and amlodipine. CTA shows some irregularity of the mid and distal right renal artery. Here at angiography, you can see the changes of FMD. FMD is treated with angioplasty, uh, not with stenting. You're just trying to break up the webs that form within the vessel lumen. In contrast, atheromatous disease is osteal, and that we dilate and we do stent. Uh, it's been shown that uh, stenting of osteoatheromatous disease substantially reduces the, the restenosis rates, with six-month uh, restenosis rates going from about 50% down to about 15%. What about renal denervation for hypertension? Uh, there was a lot of excitement about this early on, suggesting large blood pressure reductions with uh, percutaneous denervation. The subsequent trials, Simplicity 3 negative, there have been an, uh, a couple of spiral studies in the last year or two uh, it's sort of rearing its head again, but for board purposes, for your purposes, this is not ready for prime time. Board pearls, carotid disease. If they're symptomatic, 50 to 99% stenosis, revascularize. If they're asymptomatic and greater than 70% stenosis, you can consider revascularization uh, if there are no major comorbidities, but remember that opt optimal medical therapy um, is, uh, is still under study. Surgery or stent. Uh, stenting is going to give you more perioperative strokes, but the long-term results are similar. In the renal bed, uh, trials for stenting were negative, but they excluded the, the sick patients who might benefit, and FMD may respond to balloon angioplasty in young women. A few references there. That's all we've got.
You must be Canadian. Hey. <laughs> All right. So we're going to go over some of those questions again and a few others that came in uh, over the uh, portal. So this first question is a patient with a carotid stenosis is being evaluated for revascularization. Which of those is considered symptomatic? Vertigo last week with a 90% right. Two, ipsilateral transient monocular blindness, not my expressive aphasia I'm having now. Ipsilateral transient monocular blindness one month ago. Three, hemisensory loss one year ago. Or four, expressive dysphagia seven months ago. Excellent. So what's your preferred way of determining percent carotid stenosis? <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's somewhat germane to boards, but it's also germane to our practices because you get different numbers depending on the methodology you use. Yeah. So how do you approach that? Absolutely. And um, ultrasound. Ultrasound. That's my one word answer. Okay. Yeah. So, even, even as an angiography, you, <laughs> yeah. you heard it here. Yeah. Uh, ultrasound preferred, and then uh, a second would be, would be cross-sectional imaging, where I would prefer a CTA. Okay. All right, we'll go on to uh, question number two. A 77-year-old male referred two months ago two months after an ischemic stroke, affecting his left arm and left leg. With good recovery, his CTA indicates an included right internal carotid artery and a 50% stenosis of the left internal carotid, which is correct. Right CEA is indicated to reduce recurrent stroke risk. B, left carotid stenting is indicated to reduce recurrent stroke risk. C, carotid angiography should be performed prior to making any decisions or D, revascularization is not indicated? Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. It's not 95, but it's 86%, which is, I think, well, it was about 70-something percent on the pre-lecture uh, testing, so that's pretty good. Should we walk through it? You should, absolutely. Okay. So 77 years old, uh, that doesn't really tell us anything one way or the other. Two months after an ischemic stroke affecting the left arm and leg. So that stroke should have been from a right carotid lesion. Patient has recovered well, so they are potentially a candidate for revascularization. CTA indicates an occluded right internal carotid artery. Now, remember that. CTO, just say no. CTO, just say no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there is no benefit to revascularizing at occluded carotid. Now there's a 50% stenosis of the left internal carotid artery, but that a left-sided lesion wouldn't have anything to do with symptoms affecting the left arm and leg. So that 50% stenosis of the left internal carotid artery is an asymptomatic lesion. And so that <laughs> Walking through the answers, right carotid endarterectomy is indicated to reduce uh, recurrent stroke risk. No, CTO, just say no. Left carotid is indicated to re reduce. Uh, that's an asymptomatic 50% stenosis. That would not benefit from revascularization. 
Uh, and geography is not going to tell you anything you don't already know, so revascularization is not indicated. So how do you follow this individual? So you know they've got a 50% asymptomatic left carotid stenosis. How often do you image? Do you? Uh, yeah, is there a stenosis percent that's asymptomatic that you do routinely image? What, what do you do for that? I, I think this is a patient where it would be extremely important to do serial imaging. Um, and it, it, it uh, also overlaps with the question of, of how to follow people after carotid revascularization on one yeah. side. And the, the, the issue in that situation as well is not so much will they develop a restenosis if they've been revascularized, but what's going to happen to the other side uh, because there's, there's a... Uh, you know, there's a very real risk of progression, and that's not someone that you, you want to lose to follow up. So I would say annual ultrasound in this patient with optimal medical therapy. Okay, and do you ever do it more frequently than annual if it's a, a tighter stenosis that's asymptomatic? It, if, if it seems to be changing rapidly, okay. then I might move that up to every six months. Okay. Next question. A 72-year-old male who weighs 80 kilograms with prior AFib presents to the emergency department with new aphasia and hemiparesis. Last known normal was three hours ago. CT scan shows no hemorrhage, and there's an M1 occlusion. A treatment center with expertise in stent retrievers is one hour away. His blood pressure is 170 over 100. His INR is 2.2. His glucose is 105. What is the next best step in the management for this patient? Alteplase 72, Alteplase 90, transfer to the center, administer Alteplase 72 and transfer from mechanical thrombectomy, or administer Alteplase 72 and transfer from mechanical thrombectomy if no clinical response within an hour? That's a good question. Not bad. Walk through it. Okay. Um, so going through the question, 72-year-old male, 80 kilograms, prior atrial fibrillation, presents to the emergency department with new aphasian hemiparesis. Okay, major symptoms. Last known normal three hours ago, so is likely within that three-hour, or is within that three-hour window um, uh, for TPA, potentially. CT shows no uh, cerebral hemorrhage, so that's good. M1 occlusion. Uh, so that's something that might be within the, the grasp of a, uh, of a clot retriever. There is expertise one hour away, so that would put us at most four hours uh, into the event. Blood pressure is 170 over 100, so they're less than that 185 over 110 uh, for TPA. That's satisfactory. Now, the INR is 2.2, and that's problematic. So if they have an INR over 1.7, a platelet count less than 100, they've got low molecular weight heparin, they've had a DOAC, those are all contraindications to giving the TPA. Blood glucose is 105, that's fine. So the TPA is contraindicated here, and you have to transfer them. If they hadn't been on the warfarin, though, then they'd fully meet the indications would, for lytic therapy. Yeah, that's the only catch in that question is yep. the INR. And so then, though, then it comes down to one, two, four, or five. If we take the Coumadin away, so you've said it might be retrievable, and as I, said, as I seem to recall from your lecture, you'd probably go ahead and give the yeah, lytic, but then set them up to move them that direction. You'd, you'd give the lytic and you'd ship them. You wouldn't, yep. you wouldn't give it in weight. Yep. 
So if you catch that again, so potential mechanical revascularization, but you give the lytic anyway and you get them to the center where they can do it. You don't wait. You go ahead and, and initiate therapy because the brain is even more sensitive than the myocardium is to lack of blood flow here. So get that, get that open as best as you can. All right. Oh, here we go. We're going to calculate the diameter stenosis of a carotid lesion. Good luck. Uh, where do you measure the reference diameter vessel? So which one of those, A, B, C, or D, is the reference diameter for the lesion which is just beyond C there? This is, uh, this is NASET versus ECST criteria, uh, NASET being the gold standard for carotid stenosis. Uh, you measure the, the uh, tightest spot in the stenosis, and your reference point is the normal internal carotid artery distal to the stenosis, and that's, that is uh, A in that image. Okay. Which of the following is true? Renal denervation has proven long-term benefit. An 80-year-old female with stable controlled hypertension and unilateral FMD is a good candidate for renal angioplasty. Clinical benefit of renal artery stenting is supported by level one evidence. A 66-year-old man, ex-smoker, with peak systolic velocity of four meters per second at the ostium of a solitary kidney, blood pressure of 150 over 90 on three drugs, and a creatinine increasing from 1.5 to 2.1 over the last year is suitable candidate for stenting. Or five, stenting has not been shown to reduce restenosis for atheromatous renal artery stenosis. Which of those is true? Ooh, that's pretty good. Pretty close, pretty close. It's <laughs> pretty good. All right. So let me ask you another question. It's kind of in this answer. So if you start someone on an ACE inhibitor and their creatinine goes up, how much do you allow versus how much, what level that makes you worry that, you, that you've unmasked renal artery stenosis? Because the creatinine is going to go up. I don't have a ready answer. Yeah, I, I, I think that you can expect the creatinine to go up by 20%, 25% or so, and then you don't have to do this big uh, hunt for uh, a vascular abnormality in the, in the renal bed, but if it goes up dramatically, if it doubles with a low dose of something, you might be interested in having a look. 